Well, good morning. Appreciate all of you who uh, trekked out in the snow and the cold this morning to be here for worship today. This morning we're going to read one of the most powerful passages in the New Testament. And uh, there's one particular verse that this, partic- that this message is centered on. I'm going to read that verse first. It's verse 37 of Romans chapter 8 that says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. All right, how many of you get out of bed this morning and first thing you said is, I am a conqueror? Anybody? You will be by the end of the morning, okay? You'll be saying that. Uh, This is Romans chapter 8, starting verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then can condemn? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray for a minute. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity we have here today to come together and to to worship you and to let Scripture wash over us and hopefully to allow the truths of Scripture to sink deeply into our minds and our hearts. I thank you for being the Lord who has conquered death, who has conquered sin, who has conquered everything that could possibly keep us from eternity and keep us from your presence. Thank you for this day that we have to live. And I pray that you would allow our faith to be enriched and to grow as we rehearse together these wonderful truths that come from the Scriptures about the role of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And I pray that you will allow us to think deeply this morning about what it is that you have done for us and that how much you have freed us to really live, and you freed us from fear, and that you have guaranteed uh, a hope for those who trust in you, and a future for those who rest in you today. Lord, you know the, the burdens that we carry. You know those who are struggling with a variety of things. Some have been fighting off this virus, and we all have friends who have surprisingly gotten it, thinking that vaccines would take care of everything. We uh, We struggle in this season of of winter and less light. We struggle through the cold. There's some that are dealing with the loss of loved ones, and it's it's near and dear to their hearts, and the loss is is real and it's fresh. We ask that you would give strength in all these areas. We ask that you would allow us to maintain a focus that is based on the hope that we have in you and the reasons we have for, for living with joy in life. Make all that clear to us this morning. Lord, you know the, the silent 
prayers that each of us has on our hearts, those that we're praying for who've turned away from you or who've, who've wandered in their lives, and they, they break our hearts when we watch them kind of spin in cycles that we can't stop, but you can. We pray for those who are our friends who are searching for wisdom or who are looking for a new job or who've been out of work for a while, and we, we pray that you will provide the answer in the right time and in the right way, that you will open doors for us. You know, those who are praying for wisdom about how to better manage their finances or to make the hard decision that's coming up or about what to do with their next step in a career. And Lord, we pray that you would provide that wisdom in a timely way and that it would be clear that, that you have answered. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Forgive us of our sins. Allow us to come before you and acknowledge that we need your help or that we need to turn over an area of our lives to you. Allow today to be a day that we move forward in faith and in hope rather than being held back. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you think of the word conquerors or people who are conquerors, what comes to mind? Who comes to mind? I recently read one of those uh, greatest in history lists that details the 10 greatest conquerors in history. The measure chosen for this particular ranking had to do with square miles that they conquered or took possession of through warfare. Probably no surprise that Genghis Khan and Alexander the Great ranked first and second. Hollywood still makes movies about people like Alexander. Yet with so many deaths caused, these great conquerors are hardly looked at as great men or great leaders today. Or do we think of conquerors as people like Louis Pasteur, whose vaccine ended cholera, or Jonas Salk, whose vaccine wiped out polio? Or today's conquerors, companies like Pfizer, Moderna, or Johnson & Johnson, who build teams of scientists to invent medicines and vaccines that fight off the world's pestilence and plagues. When it is finally over, will they be given credit for conquering coronavirus? I was thinking about all of this because the Bible says that those who are in Christ are more than conquerors. I asked that question for you a moment ago. You know, how many of you woke up and your first thought of the day was, I'm going to start the day with the knowledge that I am a conqueror. Most of us don't wake up that way thinking this the first thing in the morning. But hold on to that thought. Part four of our More Than series brings us to Romans 8.37, which says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So I have some questions about that. What did this mean to a first century generation of Christians who faced martyrdom in Rome? What does this mean to an Afghan Christian today living in what is today called the most dangerous place for Christians to live? What does it mean to be more than a conqueror when new strains of this virus rise up and spread even faster than the original strain of coronavirus? Welcome to North River Church. We're in for a treat today, I think. Uh, I'm glad that you're here with us at North River today. We love to talk about Jesus here. And this congregation, through the years, has shown a great willingness to tackle tough questions about Christian faith and about the Bible. This month, we're studying passages that include the phrase, more than. And so we're asking this morning, what does it mean to be more than a conqueror? What is the Bible promising us when it makes such a bold statement as this?
Welcome to all of you who are watching online. For now, you feel safer at home, and we honor that, and we're grateful that you have prioritized this time. Some of you have moved farther away, and this allows you to stay connected to our church, and we're grateful for that. You found us on our website, on Facebook Live, on YouTube, or perhaps later in the week on Vimeo. But thank you for, for making this a part of your Sunday. And I ask that you would make your setting as conducive to worship and to learning as you can for the next few minutes. If you need prayer, those of you who are in the room and those of you who are watching online, let us know. If you have reasons to celebrate and praise God, we want to know that too. Fill out a connection card, either online or out at the Welcome Center today. Let us know who you are and that, you know, how you are responding to North River and how you are being enfolded into our congregation. We'd love to continue the conversation and grow deeper in friendship with you. Part four of this series that we're in this month is More Than Conquerors, and here's the main idea that I want to get across. We are more than conquerors when our lives are wrapped up in the victorious love of Jesus. This theme, More Than Conquerors, has a foundation. And in the opening verses of this section that we read in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, Paul describes the foundation for this knowledge. It's the foundation of knowing how God works. Verse 28 sets this up. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. British theologian John Stott calls these the five unshakable convictions of the New Testament. And so we're going to look at these five unshakable convictions as the foundation point for going on to understand the rest of what Paul writes in this back half of Romans 8. Here are the five convictions. First, we know that God works and that he works in our lives. This is part of what this verse teaches us. Some of you, like me, grew up in the King, with the King James Bible, which here states, all things work together for good. There's an immediate problem with that translation. Some things in life do not work out for good. Rape does not typically work out for good. Murder does not work out for good. The newer translations are actually more accurate in translating the Greek to English here, and they remove an obstacle for us in describing it as in this way, saying, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Not that all things work out for good. The point is that despite everything that happens, God is at work. He works in every possible way for your good. God is constantly, tirelessly working behind the scenes. Second, not only do we know that God works, God is at work for the good of his people. Because God himself is fundamentally, in his essence, good, he works to advance his plans for goodness in our lives. He is committed to his plans that are always good. The ultimate expression of his goodness is seen in his redemptive work through Jesus that paid the penalty for our sins and that restores us to fellowship with God himself. This is fundamentally good. Third, God works for our good in all things. The point is not that God initiates or causes all things, because he doesn't. Rather, God takes everything, good and bad, and works out his plans for good in those things and through those things. Here's a primary example of, of how God works in somebody's life. It's the example of the life of Joseph in the Old Testament book of Genesis. Joseph becomes the major subject matter in Genesis chapters 37 to 50. 
And we find that Joseph's brothers intended to kill him. This is not good. Instead, they sold him to slave traders and faked his death. Still not good. He was falsely accused and landed in prison. And this is more and more just stuff that is not good. But then we find that God gave him success in everything that he put his hand to within the prison. This is good. God used all of this to make Joseph the second highest ruler in Egypt when Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's troubling dream. This is very good. Through all of this, Joseph was able to save his brothers from seven years of famine and his entire family moved down to Egypt. This is extremely good. And then Joseph makes this statement in chapter 50, verse 20, where he says, You intended it to harm me, but God intended it for good, for the saving of many lives, which is now being done. God works for the good in all things, for the good of those who love him. That's the fourth of these unshakable convictions. John Stott calls this a necessary limitation, meaning that his goodness works out in the lives of those who love him. Ultimately, God's redemptive work takes place in the lives of those who who trust him, who put their faith in him, who respond in love, and it is not applied to those who don't love him or who fail to put their faith in him or who shake their fist at God and say, I do not want you in my life. And finally, what that verse is saying is the fifth part of this foundation. God works for the good of those who've been called according to his purpose. Their love for him corresponds to and flows from his love for them. God has a saving purpose for everyone who trusts him. And we discover his purpose for us. As we discover his purpose for us, life does not appear quite as random as we once might have thought. I believe with every fiber of my being that God has a purpose for your life as well as for mine. No matter where you start or when you start, no matter how late it is in your life, he can turn your pain and brokenness into a platform for ministry that honors him and brings joy into your life. Now, these are the foundational points that all come from Romans 8.28 for this statement that Paul makes about being more than conquerors. This conviction is fortified by five comforting questions that Paul raises here in Romans 8.31 to 39. And I'd like to walk us through these five comforting questions. Now, these questions are set up in ways where there is no answer. They are rhetorical questions. They are meant to to bring out a great body of truth to us that builds confidence. Here's the first of these questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? This is based on verse 31. What shall we say then in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Notice what Paul does not ask. He doesn't ask simply who can be against us. There are all kinds of forces arrayed against us as Christians. Death itself is described in the Bible as an enemy. Our besetting or indwelling sins, the ones that seem to continually hold us back, they're against us. Militant Islam is against us. Militant atheists are sometimes against us as Christians. Try to tear down what we're doing or, or strip your ability to carry a Bible anywhere in public. God's sworn enemy, the devil, the destroyer and liar is against us. The most horrifying words that someone could ever hear from God is if God were to say that he is against that person. But God does say that sometimes. He says it to hostile nations in the Old Testament. He says, I am against you, to Assyria, to Babylon, to to Egypt, to Tyre and Sidon. 
all nations that tried to destroy God's people. Sometimes God said this to Israel when the nation fell into idolatry and turned its back on God. I am against you, he says. God also announced that he is against false shepherds and against false prophets. Paul puts this to us as a rhetorical question, a question that needs no answer. If God is for us, nothing else can permanently harm us. And if he has redeemed us, he has justified us, adopted us, and glorified us. All themes from Romans 8. He's saying that nothing else compares to what God does for those that he loves and those who put their trust in him. This is the Bible's way of assuring us that God is for everyone who has a permanent and lasting faith in Jesus. If you've clearly put your faith in Jesus and you are resting in the finished work of Jesus, then there is no force in the world that is greater than Jesus. God is for you. He wants us to know that. Here's the second comforting question. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? This comes from verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Again, notice what Paul does not ask. He does not ask, will God graciously give us all things, as if to say, is God going to give us everything we ever want? No. We will never have all the things that can be attained or acquired in this world. Paul asks in the context of what God has already provided for us in Christ. He asks in a way that is designed to silence our doubts and fears. He's asking, won't the same God who gave us Jesus give us whatever is needed to fulfill his purpose in our lives for good? In Paul's mind, the answer is found in the cross. Notice what he does here. He says, God gave him up for us. He did not spare him. He's not saying that Judas gave Jesus up or that the chief priests gave Jesus up. He's saying that God worked through all of this and God takes responsibility for it. God's plan was always to offer Jesus as a ransom, knowing that he would raise him from the dead. And since God has already given us the best that he has, you can trust that he will give you the rest of what he wants for you. If you need a guarantee of God's generosity, Paul is saying, look no further than the cross. Here's the third of these comforting questions. Who will bring any charge against us? Verse 33 says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Paul imagines in a, a courtroom scene here, he draws us into this imaginary cosmic courtroom. Justification has been described as the forensic or legal act of God where he pronounces someone to be innocent in his sight by virtue of his declaration. In this courtroom, Jesus is your advocate. He's standing there, in a sense, as your lawyer, and he's pleading your case, and God is the one who justifies. There's also an accuser in this courtroom. This is the evil one, the devil. His role is to tempt, to accuse, to attempt to condemn Christians. Revelation 12.10 calls him the accuser of the brethren or the accuser of our brothers and sisters. One of the names given to him in Greek is diabolos, which is where the word devil comes from. It means slanderer. To slander is to bring false evidence or false charges that defame or damage a reputation. 
So this is what the evil one wants to do to you or me. He wants to, to destroy your reputation. He wants to defame you. He, he wants to have a black mark put on your record forever. But because Jesus has already served the sentence for us, the law has no power over us. This is why from time to time the New Testament stresses that we are not under the law. This doesn't mean that Christians are free to break all laws or that we are lawless people. It means that even though we fall short of God's moral law, it has no power over the person whose penalty has already been paid. Paul is arguing that the accuser cannot threaten the person who is redeemed by Christ. In this world, you and I can be accused of all kinds of things, and some of those accusations will be false accusations. But in the ultimate courtroom that matters, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, and if you have been renewed in Christ, you're a new creature, a new person in Christ, there is no one who can accuse you before God. No one who can condemn you or bring a charge against you. Paul is arguing that the, the accuser cannot threaten the person who is redeemed by Christ. No charge can stick that the accuser can possibly throw at us. And so he asks, who will bring charges against the chosen, against the justified? No one when Christ is your advocate. The fourth of these comforting questions is taken then to a higher level. Who can condemn, let alone being accused? Who can condemn? Verse 34, who then can condemn? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So not only can no one bring a charge, no one can condemn us. Some people live with a tremendous sense of role confusion. They have the idea that God is just waiting around the corner with this big two-by-four, waiting for you to slip up, and when you turn the corner, whack, he's going to hit you over the head with it. I've met a number of people who've described their idea of God that way. The Bible is telling us that is not God. But the devil, Diabolos, the accuser, the slanderer, is the one who waits and hopes to condemn us. But he has a huge, huge problem with that task. Jesus is our advocate. In other places in the New Testament, we have seen that the Holy Spirit is described as our advocate. It's a military term that was described to use, uh, used to describe a partner in battle when two soldiers would, would be back to back. The other partner would protect your blind side as you were looking forward. And now he uses this in a different way. Here, the advocate is used in a legal context. So Jesus, the Son of God, and God is the judge, Jesus pleads your case. He takes your case knowing that he is willing to pay the penalty for you and that the sentence has already been served. This is an amazing role that he plays because Jesus knows he's the one who has done this. Even more, it describes Jesus as sitting next to God, interceding for us means he's continually pleading your case before God the Father. This means that Jesus, who sits at the right hand of God the Father, is in the kingdom of heaven now, pulling for you to win every battle that you're in, every battle over sin, every battle over addiction, every battle for an inappropriate attraction or denial or act of self-destruction that you could possibly be involved in. As Christopher Arch writes, there isn't a hint of condemnation in the intercession of Christ on our behalf. 
Do you realize what a force he is for us? Our advocate is pulling for you to succeed and to triumph in every battle that you could possibly be in in life. And this is why Paul raises this question, who can condemn when you have an advocate like this, who's the very son of God the Father? There's not one adversary who can take you down in God's eyes or before God's throne. So then he asks a fifth comforting question. It's perhaps the most wonderful of them all. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And you know already that the answer is no one can because all of these questions have been rhetorical in that way. And so in verse 35 he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? This is the greatest of the five questions. This is the one that brings the greatest clarity. What or who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he, he lists seven very real obstacles or adversities that we may face in this world. Trouble, hardship, or persecution. They were very real difficulties living in a hostile world in the first century. Famine or nakedness, these indicate basic needs being stripped away. Danger or sword. Some of the people Paul was writing to, the original readers of this letter, would die in this manner. Even Paul himself would die at the hand of Caesar. The worst that the world can throw at you is powerless to separate you from the love of God in Christ. Because even if they appear to win in the short term, even if they take your life, you are united with God in heaven and you dwell with him for eternity in a place that is far better than this world. Paul was writing these words to encourage Christians who were walking into a phenomenal season of opposition to all things that are connected with Christ. And he was showing them that you are more than conquerors in the midst of all these things. So what makes us more than conquerors? This is what the last three verses tackle. Verse 37 no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then listen to the conviction that comes from Paul. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The key phrase is, in all these things. This is the phrase that sets the context for the statement that Paul makes that we are more than conquerors. So what are these things? Well, first of all, they're the foundation of knowing how God works for our good. We went through those five stages of, of how God works for us from Romans 8.28 as the foundation for these, these uh, benefits that come through the questions. Second, there are the benefits that are secured by Christ's victory on the cross, which is what all five of those comforting questions are leading to. And third, there's the triumphant love of God in Christ. In all of these obstacles, things we are tempted to think can isolate us from God, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, all things that are designed to strip, to, to literally suck the life out of you, not one of them is able to separate us from the love of Christ because Christ loves us in and through every difficulty that comes in life. How far can we trust this? 
Paul presents 10 measuring sticks here. Four pairs and two singular measuring, measuring points. So what are the pairs? Life and, life not, uh, uh, death not life, uh, death nor life, angels nor demons, present nor future, height nor depth. Those are four pairs. He's trying to say, uh, how wide does this go? How far does this go? Then he adds, nor any powers, nor anything else in creation. Why does he list these 10 factors? Have you ever been around parents with a newborn child or a young toddler? Maybe you remember back to your own children or your own grandchildren. We, we hold them in our arms and we say things like, do you know how much I love you? I love you as far as the east is from the west, right? Or moms will say to their little kids, I love you to the moon and back. That's what Paul's doing here. In a spiritual way, he's asking the question, how far does the love of God reach into our lives? How far can we trust this? And he answers back by saying, uh, he's convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, nothing in the present or the future, no powers, not height or depth or anything else in creation, to the moon and back, to the end of creation and back, you can trust the love of Jesus. In the same way that children need to be reassured of how greatly their parents and those who matter to them love them, God is recognizing that you and I need to be reassured. We need to be reassured when you go through discouraging times, like the time that we're going through right now with this virus that has spread across the world. We need to be reassured in times when you lose a loved one in your family and when it's tremendously crushing to you. We need to be reassured when there's somebody else in this world who opposes you or opposes your faith or who wants to tarnish your, your reputation. We need to be reassured when something that we do doesn't work out the way that we thought it would or when something is taking too long, at least in, in our calendar of arranging things. He reminds us again and again that he loves us. And the ultimate demonstration of God's profound love for us was that he did not spare his own son, Jesus, in paying the cost for you and me to be adopted into his family and to be united with God forever. And so now we come to that key phrase, more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors is one word in the Greek language in the New Testament. It's the only time that this is used in the Bible. Just as the resurrection proved that Christ has conquered sin and death, so we too not only survive all these challenges, but Paul is saying we triumph through them. The very things that make the world think that Christians have been left out there to die. We have this amazing statement that says, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's quoting from the Old Testament, but he's saying this is the way the world sees Christians, as sitting ducks, as people that the world can just take pot shots at. But what they don't understand is that in and through all these things, we triumph nonetheless because none of them has the power to separate us from the love of God in Christ. None of them has the power to strip away what God wants to do in your life and the way that God wants to glorify you and have you share in the glories of Jesus Christ. Christ has proved his love for us through his sufferings. And so our, even our sufferings unite us to the experience of Christ in a way that reassures us of his love. We are more than conquerors when our lives are wrapped up in the victorious love of God 
in Jesus. And so we sang a little while ago, we have hope in Jesus. We have hope as we go forward. I want you to know that whatever you are facing this week, no matter what kind of struggle you are dealing with, no matter how deep it seems, how persistent it seems, how much you feel like a failure, we are conquerors in Jesus Christ because he loves us so greatly and because your faith has united you to Christ in such a way that nothing can strip that away. No matter what the world throws at you, no matter how difficult it gets, Nothing can take away the triumph of Christ in your life. And he's made you alive and he's adopted you as one of your children. And one day you will be seated in a place of honor in the kingdom of heaven because you are part of God's family, because you are connected to Christ. This is my prayer for 2022, that God makes this a more than year for you in so many ways more than you could ever have imagined how much he loves you. That's the message for today. More than for you, more than for me, more than, and we have hope in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for all the conquerors who are in this room. Not because we have conquered even one thing in life, but because we are connected to the conqueror, Jesus, who has triumphed over everything that would hold us back. Thank you for allowing us to be united with Jesus and to be so thoroughly caught up with him that we can say with Paul that there is no one who could accuse us. There is no charge that could be brought against us for we are conquerors in Christ. And I pray that you will allow us this week to win every battle, every battle in the mind, every battle over sin, every battle over temptation, every battle over fear or thinking we've been left behind or that we don't matter to you, every battle over insignificance, let us walk forward as conquerors because we are aligned and allied with the one who has conquered every enemy for us. Thank you in the mighty, glorious, victorious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.